Good morning, church. Uh, to the, the faithful few who, who, uh, who woke up with their alarms, uh, thank you for being here. I actually, confession, I, I thought I was being real smart. I, I still have, I mean, I, we have electronic alarm clocks as well that auto-update, but we also have old-school alarms that you have to update. And I thought I was really being, being real smart by adjusting them before I went to bed because, you know, that way when you wake up, it's not so jarring. Only I turn the clocks back. <laughs> so when my alarm woke up this morning, I'm like, why is it 5 o'clock? So I inflicted this on myself. <laughs> but I'm, I got here on time, so it's a good thing. Um, I want to start this morning by telling you a story of something that happened uh, when I was 16 or 17 years old. I was living in England. I was, I was at boarding school at the time. And I was a much pickier eater than I am now. Okay. I, I really wasn't a fan of, of fruits and vegetables. I, I actively avoided them, in fact. Uh, and that's a point to note because that will come up in a moment. Now, since my parents were back in Hong Kong, uh, the school I was attending required me to have uh, adults who were responsible for me and lived at least in the same country. They were my guardians. Uh, this was a couple about my mom, my parents' age, who my mom had connected with through mutual friends. They had kids of their own who were about my age, and so it was kind of like having second parents. The mom was Malaysian Chinese, and she loved to cook, and I was a teenager who loved to eat, just not fruits and vegetables. But on the most, for the most part, it worked out. Okay, so now there's one, there was one school break. I was with them, and, and we, my my guardians, myself, I think one of uh, their sons who was a year older than me, we were going to have dinner with some of their friends from church, uh, a couple, at their friend's house. Uh, the couple was vegetarian. I think, I think they may have been the first vegetarians I had ever met. Now my guardian knew that I was picky about fruits and vegetables, and so what they did was they cooked up a meatloaf dish so that I would have something to eat. It was super thoughtful. The intention was that anybody who wanted to partake of this meatloaf, including my guardians and or their son, could do so as well. Right? This little fact did not get communicated to our hosts, who took the baking dish with the meatloaf in it and put the whole thing in front of me. whole baking dish meatloaf for six. Just right in front of me. Now, I, I'm a teenager. Raised in Chinese culture, I'm taught not to make a fuss out of things. And for whatever reason, my guardians didn't say anything either. I'm also taught not to waste things. Clean plate club forever. So I did what I could. You know, I was a teen, I, you know, I started strong, committed, energetic. I, you know, I got through one portion. I got through two portions. Started getting full. Started to slow down. Chewing a little bit slower. Uh, I think I made it through half of this hearty meatloaf for six. I was plowing on even after everyone else had finished their vegetarian <laughs> dinner and we're just chatting away. And I'm just there. 
And, and at that point, I don't know what prompted my guardians to finally notice. But the mom said, oh, you don't have to finish that if you don't want to. Let me tell you, I felt like a voice from heaven. <laughs> you know, accompanied by the angelic choir singing the hallelujah chorus, the, the load fell from my back, I was able to breathe again, the clouds parted, and life became worth living again. Thinking about it now, first of all, I have some questions for the grown-ups who uh, maybe could have helped me out a little bit earlier. You know, I, I don't know if they were trying to subtly encourage me away from my meditarianism. But I tell you that story because, uh, clearly, it's an experience that is seared into my memory, that is burned into my psyche of a time when I just did not know what to do when I did not know how to respond. An instance that were I to know then what I know now, I would have acted a little differently. The story of the disciples in Mark's gospel is pretty much one of having no idea. Today's passage marks the first time the disciples speak and what you'll see in the coming chapters is this repeated pattern that the ones who are on the so-called inside, those who get to see Jesus up close, most clearly, are also the ones who often don't get it. Mark has no qualms about painting the disciples in an unflattering light. See, for Mark, discipleship is a key theme. It's a key component of the story of Jesus. In other words, our response to Jesus is an indispensable part of the good news. Just think about the phrases we've heard over the last couple of weeks. Listen, look. Let those who have ears to listen pay attention. The ones sown on the good soil hear the word and embrace it and bear fruit. Throughout his gospel, Mark uses the disciples not necessarily as a template to follow, but especially through their inability to understand as a foil for his audience. So it's not just the words of Jesus that he wants us to consider, but also the confusion of the disciples, the questions they ask, the things that they get wrong, as if to pose the questions to us, well, what would your response be? What are you going to do? What do you think? What will you do? The setting for today's passage is this. Jesus has just finished another day of teaching to a crowd from a boat on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And to spark your imagination, let me show you a picture of the remains of a, an ancient fishing boat that was found in, from, it's dated to the first century, it was found in the 1980s on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, right around where Jesus would have been ministering. The measurements of the boat's remains were about 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and just over four feet high. It was a shallow boat, the flat bottom, so it could get close to the shore. And it would, have a, it would have had a place for a mast as well as space for four staggered rowers. Okay? That might well have been the kind of boat that Jesus taught from. Might well have been the kind of boat that the disciples are in for what is about to happen in Mark chapter 4. Let's read it again. Later that day when evening came, Jesus said to the disciples, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. They left the crowd and took him in the boat just as he was. Other boats followed along. A great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. 
But Jesus was in the rear of the boat, sleeping on a pillow. They woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And then the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you frightened? Don't you have faith yet? And terrified, they said to each other, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. This is the first time we hear the twelve, Jesus' chosen disciples, speak. It's a quarter of the way into Mark's gospel, chapter 4 out of 16. And it's an expression of what? Don't you care that we're drowning? Who then is this? Is it desperation? Is there doubt? Is there fear? Is there faith? It depends a little bit on how you interpret certain words and how you read tone into the text. And therefore, it may also depend on how you think about Jesus, how you think about God, how you, right here and right now, answer that question, who then is this? This is also the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is called teacher. It's the first time he's called teacher. Now, we might wonder why in the midst of a life-threatening storm with the waves about to overtake them, the disciples call him teacher. What's the teacher going to do in the middle of the storm? Perhaps the incongruence comes from our picture of a teacher in a classroom. Remember the words of Eugene Peterson that Matthew quoted a few weeks ago, a disciple is a learner, but not in the academic schoolroom sense of the word, but rather at the worksite of a craftsman. We do not acquire information about God, but skills in faith. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a disciple, a learner, an apprentice. We learn how to live from Jesus. And so this morning, let me offer you a couple things we learn from Jesus, the teacher, when the storms come. When the storms come. That's the first point. It's not a matter of if but when the storms come. It's not a matter of if, but when the storms come. That's particularly true when we're following Jesus, when we're working in service to God's kingdom. So in chapter 3, right before this passage, we're told that Jesus' family, his, his mother and his brothers, came to get him. So we can assume he was close to home. At the very least, he was on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. At the beginning of today's passage, what does Jesus say? Let's go cross over to the other side of the lake. Well, in chapter 5, right after this, which we'll hear about next week, we learn that Jesus arrived in the region of the Gerasenes, which was a predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish area. So what this means is that Jesus initiates a crossing from the Jewish side of the lake to the Gentile side of the lake. This was a divine call to go to the Gentiles, to cross a boundary that was fraught with historical, ethnic, and religious tensions, to bring the good news of the kingdom of God to those who were on the outside. And there's a storm. Now, any given storm may be, you know, a coincidence, simply a naturally occurring phenomenon. But it is not so in this case. And we know that because we are told That in verse 39, Jesus rebuked the wind. He rebuked the wind. Mark uses the same verb here that he used in chapter 1 when Jesus rebuked the evil spirit. Jesus rebuked the wind. 
So in this context, the storm serves to point out that the way of God's kingdom is not one that comes without opposition. And particularly in how God extends welcome and liberation to all. Storms will come. Now let me be clear. Not every storm is caused by evil spirits. Not every storm has spiritual significance. Sometimes a storm is just a storm, a product of a water cycle and, you know, collision of wind patterns. But in this case, Mark tells us, there was a spiritual component to the physical storm. This is no ordinary storm. This is no ordinary crossing. This is a divine mission to bring the love of God, to bring the kingdom of God, the inclusion and liberation of God to those who are on the outside, and it encounters spiritual opposition. Have you seen or sensed or experienced spiritual opposition to the ways of God, to that which God wants to do? to the salvation and liberation God longs to bring, whether in your life or in the world. Have you ever faced a storm, a metaphorical storm, just when you thought you were doing exactly what God told you to do? Have you ever experienced tension or conflict that made you wonder if you heard God right? You know, sometimes we can be under the impression that... Uh, if we're doing what Jesus wants us to do, everything will be smooth sailing. That the wind will be at our back, that, you know, the, the lights will turn green before we even get to the signal, that all the cards will come up aces. And sometimes the grace of God works in such a way to make space like that for us, to make a way for us. That absolutely can happen. But more often than not, when God's Spirit wants to do a good work, whether in us or in the world, there is opposition. You want to be more patient? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but God ain't just going to zap patience into you. More likely, God is going to give you opportunities to learn patience. And you may experience some internal opposition to that. Do you want to be more loving? Tell that to your self-preservation instincts when love asks you to put others first. Do you want to experience deep community and life-giving friendships? You may need to, to step up. You may need to reach out. You may need to risk being known, and you may need to risk being disappointed. Do you want to overcome addiction? It's hard to give up something you've relied on for years, something that you have turned to for relief, even if you knew it was tearing you apart. You want to leave a relationship or a situation that you know is not good for you. Well, our fear of the unknown, our, our lack of certainty that there will be a guaranteed better outcome, those things can keep us in places of unhealth. Do we want to see God's peace and flourishing in the world, affordable housing and, and health care for all and educational equity and, and no more war, no more refugees? Well, there are power imbalances and wealth inequality and folks who, who really don't want to change anything about the way things are because it's working out okay for them. And change means sacrifice. And to a greater or lesser extent, that may include us. 
So do we want to see God's liberation in our church and in our city? God's purposes do not come about without opposition. So let's expect that. Let's expect that. Let's be on our guard. There are so many passages about that in Scripture. Jesus told his disciples plainly and in parables to stay alert. The Apostle Peter wrote, Be clear-headed, keep alert. Your accuser, the devil, is on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Two weeks ago, we heard about those who are like the seed sown on rocky places who hear the word and receive it with joy, but when trouble comes because of the word, they fall away because they have no root. They're unprepared. They're caught off guard. As a kid, my dad used to quote 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 to me, uh, often in a somewhat joking way when I was getting a little too big for my britches, but it holds true in all seriousness. This is what 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says. Uh, parents, this is just sort of freebie for you. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. In Galatians, Paul writes about putting on the armor of God. Be on your guard. Be aware. Be alert. Be awake. The kingdom of God, that is what God wants to happen, and the life and the liberation that God longs for all of us to experience, it will not come on earth as in heaven without facing opposition from the kingdom of the enemy or from the sin that just wants to remain in us and in the world. Now, let me also say this. This is not about becoming more suspicious of everyone or thinking that every person you meet is a threat. Okay, what I don't want is for us to experience some conflict or tension with somebody and label them as a spiritual opponent or a pawn of the enemy. That's probably not going to go down super well. Probably not help the situation. And that's the easy solution. Externalize the problem. Shift the blame. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't confront. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak truth. But let us do so when we do with a humility that acknowledges we may hear wrong sometimes. That what we're saying may also be a reflection or a projection of the untended wounds we have. That we want to discern this together. Being alert means being vigilant in differentiating the powers and the principalities that we struggle against from the flesh and blood that may be executing those things. Being alert means being quick to apologize and quick to forgive. Being alert means reaching out to community and setting up structures of support so that when a hard season comes, we don't find ourselves on our own. Storms will come. It's a matter of when, not if. Okay? Here in Mark 4, there's a literal storm. There's risk. There's danger. There's the threat of death. There's waves crashing over the side of the boat. And the disciples, some of whom are trained fishermen, are panicking, and that's how we know it's serious. Somehow, the disciples who have no idea, the disciples who get it wrong, they stumble into the right answer. They stumble into the right answer. Maybe because the grace of God is just like that. They woke Jesus up, and they said, Teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? When the storms come, they turn to Jesus. 
When the storms come, they turn to Jesus, who is Lord over all and is with us in it all. When the storm comes, they turn to Jesus, who initiated the mission and will sustain it. When the storm comes, they turn to Jesus, who called them and is forming them. When the storm comes, they turn to Jesus, who can rebuke the wind and bind the straw man. When the storm comes, they turn to Jesus. Mark's audience may well have heard this story and seen the parallels with, with Psalm 107. So the redeemed cried out to Yahweh in their distress, and God brought them out safe from their desperate circumstances. God quieted the storm to a whisper. Seas, waves were hushed. Jesus has the power of God to bring order to chaos to bring stillness to the storm, to rescue his people from danger and distress and desperation. Now, what that does not mean is that God's people will not experience danger and distress and desperation. It does not mean that we will not know chaos. It does not mean that we will not get battered by the storm. It does not mean that we will avoid difficulty and darkness. They, the redeemed in Psalm 107, they, the disciples in Mark 4, they cried out to the Lord in their distress. The words of the disciples to Jesus, don't you care that we're drowning? They echo the words of another psalm, Psalm 44. Wake up. Why are you sleeping, Lord? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why are you hiding your face? Forgetting our suffering and oppression. We have all seen and heard and been in situations where we wondered if God was asleep. If God really cared about us. If God was, was, was hiding from us when we needed help. If God actually saw our plight. Because if God did see if God was awake, if God did care, if God was present, then why did God not act? Why did God not heal? Why did God not enact justice on those who had harmed us? That is the lament and the cry of every hurting person in every marginalized community in the history, in history that has called on the name of the Lord. The Bible is full of their witness, as is the church. And so if the words, don't you care that we are drowning, are yours too, know that you are not alone. Know that you stand in the line of faith, the line of the faithful, calling on God to save. Ten years ago, last Saturday, March 5th, my college best friend passed away from a brain tumor. Ten years. He was 30 years old at the time. I remember when we were in school together. He was the life and soul of the party. He was energetic. He was boisterous. Never met a stranger. Also never afraid of a fight with a stranger. <laughs> We had many conversations about faith over the years. But while he often expressed admiration for mine, 
for believing in something, he'd say. He never chose to follow Jesus, at least as far as I knew. I prayed and fasted for his healing, for the restoration of his body, for the cancer to leave. I prayed and I hoped, and when we had the chance to talk and his head wasn't hurting too much, I told him again about Jesus. By our last conversation, his sister had to interpret his mumbles through the phone. And then he was gone, March 5th, 2012. As far as I was concerned, neither of my prayer requests for his healing and for him to, to, to know Jesus, neither of them had been answered. Not every prayer is answered in the way or in the time that we want it to be answered. And that's hard. Because it can make us question if God really is who God says God is. Loving, mighty to save, healer, proven. Just, liberator, binder of the brokenhearted, proven. Sometimes God does. Okay? Sometimes God does. I've prayed, I have prayed for people who have been healed, physically, spiritually, emotionally. I have seen hard hearts melt, and, and systems that seem set in stone begin to shift, though not without storms, not without struggle. I've seen God break chains in my own life, and I've seen God break through in others' lives. But there is no formula. Because God is not a divine vending machine. Instead, the witness of our foremothers and forefathers in the faith of those who were sometimes delivered in their times of need and also sometimes not is one that points to a bigger picture, points to a longer view. We stand in the, in the tradition of Esther, okay, who was saved from genocide. We stand in the tradition of three young men unsinged in a Babylonian furnace. We stand in the tradition of the Apostle Paul who was rescued miraculously from jail. We do. And we also stand in the tradition of so many prophets who experienced only their words falling on deaf ears. We stand in the tradition of Bathsheba whose husband was killed by the lust of a supposedly God-fearing king. We stand in the tradition of Jesus and Peter and Paul as well, who were not delivered from death at Roman hands. You know, I bet the disciples would have loved for Jesus to, to have told the wind to die down before it had the chance to make them think they were about to die. You know, maybe just a little bit earlier. It's like when it starts blowing a little bit, you can calm it down. Jesus did save them, but not in the way or the time that they wanted. In the words of one commentary, sometimes God saves us from trouble. We love those, we love those moments. Didn't even have to experience it. Sometimes God saves us in trouble. Just a little bit would be preferable. Not too much. 
Sometimes he saves us from death. And we give thanks for that. But sometimes we are asked to trust God's power to save beyond death. Sometimes we are asked to trust God's power to save beyond death, to raise us even from death. For that's the story of Jesus Christ. That's the story of the one in whom all our life is found. The one who is with us in the storm. The resurrection of Jesus, which we are fast approaching as Easter's on the horizon, it tells us that our God is one who has power even beyond death. So when I think about my friend 10 years later, I know that his healing did not come on earth, at least for his cancer. Released from pain and brokenness did, and I know that there is a fuller healing coming for all of us, somehow. I don't know if or when or how he came to know Jesus before he died, but I know that the loving and gracious and just God who desires that all would come to a saving knowledge of him has power even beyond the grave, has a love that is stronger than death. I trust that. trust that. After Jesus calms the storm, he turns to his disciples and he says, why are you frightened? Don't you have faith yet? You know, some commentators think that Jesus is scolding his disciples here, you know, reprimanding them for their lack of faith, telling them off for not calming the storm themselves. After all, he did call them to be with him and to do as he was doing. He told them to cast out evil spirits, told them to rebuke evil spirits, maybe just in the way that he had. So it's possible that Jesus spoke these words with the tone of an exasperated teacher or parent with their students or kids who just aren't getting it. Or a drill sergeant berating his cadets to do better and be better. But I wonder instead if Jesus, with all the patience and insight of God, knew that the disciples had the ability to step out in faith into the calling he had given them. Knew that, that, that he had given them what they needed in this moment. But he also knew the internal opposition, the discomfort that came with being stretched beyond what we know, being asked to step out beyond what we're comfortable with. I wonder if Jesus, like a parent telling a fearful child that they have within themselves all that they need to do what comes next, or a friend reminding you that you are wiser and more competent and more capable than you think you are, and even if you aren't, you have the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit will make up the difference. He says the same thing to each of us in our desperation, in our darkness, in our despair, in our doubt, and in whatever storms that we're facing right now, whatever seasons we find ourselves in following him where we just do not know what to do. So maybe we just keep eating meatloaf. He looks into our eyes with the love that created the universe love that gave, gave up comfort and privilege and safety to win our salvation and our liberation. And he says, why are you frightened? 
don't you have faith yet? The storms will come. And when they do, let us turn to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh God, no, nobody, nobody enjoys being tossed and turned in, in fear for their life. Nobody enjoys that sense of instability, of chaos, of not knowing where help is going to come from, not knowing if help is going to come. And often in those seasons, we, we're just sort of left adrift. We, we feel adrift. Help us to look to you. God, every single person in here is carrying something, is, has a battle that they are fighting, has a storm in their life. We may have acknowledged it or it may be bubbling under the surface. Maybe it's about our identity, about who we are, about... Maybe it's about belonging. Maybe it's about where, where do I fit? Who are my people? Where, where are my supports? Maybe it's about purpose. What am I supposed to do? And how do I go about doing it? But God, I pray that as we turn to you, Lord, that you will... Not just give us marching orders, not just give us reassurances, but that you will be present with us. And that we will know we are safe in the presence of the one who made the universe. And so we pray these things in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.